Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And today, I'm going to be starting a new, I I have to call it a series, y'all, but I don't know how long it's going to go, but it includes multiple murders, multiple trials, and the ending is just so stupid I mean, the story needs to be told, uh, and at the end of the story, whenever it's going to be, I'll tell you what my personal involvement is, my personal knowledge of this case is, and I'm I'm going to bring someone on who can give even more uh, personal knowledge, a, a, a person that worked, uh, I don't want to give it away, I, I, the last episode, I'll bring somebody else on that can give more personal, detailed knowledge of this, of this bad guy. So, that being said, before we get started, I want to talk about a couple things real quick. First of all, thank you, Lifers. I love you. Thank you for sharing us and, and promoting us and telling your friends about us. And you, you're the reasons that we're growing so much. Patreon members, thank you so much. Wouldn't have a show without you. And real quick on the advertisers, y'all. Look, if you own a business, and I've failed to mention this the last couple times because I got into the episodes and forgot, but if you own a business and you want me to promote you, you want to sponsor Real Life Real Crime, email Cindy. It's C-Y-N-D-I, Cindy at realliferealcrime.com. I do it for, for all these big national companies, y'all, and that's why they reorder me every month and um, I have these extended contracts with them, et cetera, is because you lifers buy the products that I'm, I promote, right? Now, look, I get to try all the products. They ship them to me. There's, there's nothing I've done a commercial for that I haven't tried or let my wife try, and I, I reviewed it. So the you know the proof is in the pudding. We have all the stats and all that stuff Cindy can get with you and send to you. But I want to do it 
for people. And what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take one client in each category, whether you're a restaurant or, you know, like we have Miss Belay, who who I did one for, who's our, now she handles all our taxes for life, real crime, right? And she's awesome. She's out of Louisiana. I'm gonna take one person from each category. So I've been real remiss on that. Give us a shot. Let me show you what we can do. You won't be limited to a 60-second commercial. If we're going to promote you, I can do lives or put you on social media or, you know, make it. Hell, I can have you on the show and interview you, right? So enough of that housekeeping. If, you want, if you're interested in it, we the proof is in the pudding. We have the numbers. Email Cindy, C-Y-N-D-I, at realliferealcrime.com. So we're going to get started with today's episode. Now, listen. This case is old as fuck, okay? It's, it's old, but I have <laughs> a trip you out one, and I'll tell you my personal knowledge of it. I think I'm going to call it Cajun, and and that came to me because the I actually read some, some stuff on this, y'all, like detailed stuff, and man, the, the, the especially this first part, wait till you hear all the Cajun names, and I'm sure I'll uh, mispronounce some of them, but Karen Ortolano who is a Dream Team moderator, like kind of the researcher. If I need something researched, she'll uh, look it up. She posts in the crew page every day a different crime, right? That's her thing. She loves true crime. And when she posted this one the other day, I was like, holy shit. Oh, I, I remember this, and, and I know about this. And then I said, can, can I take it down, Karen? Because uh, um, I want to do an episode on this because this story is amazing, all right? When you put it all together, and then I promise you, you don't know any, everything, even if you go Google it. So that being said, at the time this happened, y'all, I'll tell you this much to start with. The I was living, I was 20 years old. I was living in Lafayette, and I'll never forget this Easter Sunday. On holidays, I would always come home to East Lushana to Clinton to my parents' house to celebrate with my family, right? And my dad on Easter Sunday he always cooked a whole prime rib, and my mama made my favorite potato casserole uh, with green onions and this melted cheese on the top and all this stuff. And long story short, I'd come home to celebrate the weekend with my family, especially Thanksgiving and and. Easter, my brothers and sisters would come in from all over the country. But I remember leaving. I drove a black Ford Escort GT, and I had to drive back to Lafayette. I lived just just south of Lafayette, almost to Maurice, in an apartment. And um, so that's about almost a three-hour drive from Clinton. And I'll, I'll never forget it. It was a bluebird sky day, and I was coming up to the base of the Mississippi River Bridge, and there I saw this white guy, white male, in cut-off blue jean shorts, white Cajun Reeboks, and that those, y'all, are, it's a joke when we say down here, when you see somebody wearing white shrimping boots, the rubber boots, like uh, like the cheap ones, the black ones that you see everybody wearing, well, these are white, and they're commonly worn by the shrimpers on the boats, right? And he had on a muscle shirt, and he was sunburnt and whatever, and I'm thinking, and he's hitchhiking. I saw him from about couple hundred yards away. I'm thinking, you know what? I never pick up a hitchhiker. Never. And I said, but it's Easter Sunday. And what would Jesus do, right? And it was it was kind of hot outside. And so I pulled over. And I'm in the Mississippi River Bridge. You're going up that side. That's a hell of a hump up that bridge. And I'm like, man, I would just give him a ride over the bridge or something, right? And so I pull over. And he, he, he jumps in the car. He's like, oh, man, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. 
and it was, he was obviously Cajun of Cajun descent. And as soon as he got in the car, I immediately regretted picking him up. Not because he was a serial killer or tried to do anything to me, but because immediately when he got in the car and I said, I said you know, you know, a happy Easter man, you know, I said, where are you going? He said, man, I'm going, I'm going to uh, Lake Charles. He said, he said, I'm from Lake Charles, but I was on a shrimp boat out of um, South Texas. And he said, we shrimped the whole Gulf and we got all the way down to the Florida Keys, and he said the boat docked to take on provisions. And he said I went into town and I started drinking, and I I, I must have blacked out. And a couple of days later, I woke up, and my boat was gone. He said, he said they left me. He said he, I said what? He said yes. Yeah. So he said I've been hitchhiking all the way from the Florida Keys to here, man. He said, I'm so tired. I said, man, I bet your feet are raw as fuck in those white Cajun Reeboks. He said, yes, sir. He said, I'm hurting, but they, that wasn't what the problem was, y'all. problem was the body odor hit me, and it hit me so bad. And, I, you know, I took off. I'm driving over the bridge. Look, I was gagging. So I rolled the windows. I said, look, man, it's hot. My AC and work. I rolled the windows down. With the windows down, I made it over the bridge, and I passed the Port Allen exit, and the smell was so bad. I mean, literally, I was about to throw up. So I came up on the Raymond Mariquin exit, which is the last one before long, a Chafalaya Basin Bridge, and, uh, one of the longest bridges in the world, I think. But so I, I got jumped off that exit, and there's really nothing there. I was like, hey, man, this is, this is where I get off. You know, <laughs> see you later. You know, and, and I put him out. But I, you know what? I gave him my. Uh, you know, I was a poor college kid at the time, and I didn't have a lot of money. But my mom had sent me back with some of my favorite potato casserole, and I gave that to him because I felt sorry for him. He said he was hungry and shit, and there wasn't anything to eat out there. But anyway, so I leave, and I go on. You know, I left him, and I jump back on the interstate, and, and I go on back to my apartment. And then I went, you know— Two things you never, my mom always said you never have to go far to find in South Louisiana as a church in a bar room. And yes, it was Easter Sunday, but yes, I went to a bar room in, in the early afternoon hours, okay? And we'll leave it at that and I'll start the story. All right. So on April 15th, 1990, that was it, y'all, Easter Sunday, all right? And it, now, you know, I'm raw and unscripted, but there's so much information in this and, and that I've, uh, Karen had found something and I was able to read up on it. I don't want to miss anything, so I'm going to read a lot. But remember, in the end, I'm going to tie it all up for you with personal knowledge. Now, this is this is today, I'm only going to do one, one part of the series of the crimes, so, so bear with me. All right. So the defendant in this case, the name is Scott Bork. Now, that's a good, strong Cajun name, y'all, B-O-U-R-Q-U-E, all right? Scott Bork, or I'll call him the defendant a lot. Scott Bork was indicted for the second-degree murder of Jasper Fontenot, another good Cajun name, F-O-N-T-E-N-O-T, which occurred on the night of Easter Sunday, April 15th, 1990, at the Barn Lounge in Gaydon, Louisiana. And that's spelled G-U-E-Y-D-A-N, Louisiana. Now, let me tell you about Gaydon. Gaydon and Kaplan are right close together, and they are in the extreme south, 
west Louisiana, and the, I, you can't get any more Cajun than they are down there. Okay, and Gaydon, they're they're known as the duck and, and goose capital of the world. They're supposed to, and I, I've hunted down there a lot actually um, with my fraternity brothers, but they that's what Gaydon is known for. But Gaydon is smaller than the town where I grew up, especially back in 1990, right? And, and the town where I grew up in Clinton, they still didn't even have a red light, a fully functioning red light. But there's nothing in Gaydon, and everybody's related. And, you know, everybody knows everybody. There's, I mean, I, I don't want to say it comes from a long line of inbreeding or whatever, but it is what it is, and they're all Cajun. And I'm talking about Cajun to the accent. I couldn't even begin to try and do it. You got, you, you would have trouble understanding them. If it was on HBO or something, They and they talking to you in English, their English, they'd have to have the captions underneath, okay? So, all right, so... The Barn Lounge. Now, right, the Barn Lounge was like one of like three places you could drink and get on, and it wasn't anything fancy. And yes, I've been there. I had, had been there. And you walk in, it's a small, it's an old barn. You walk in, um, it's a small bar, like maybe five seats, and, and there's a couple tables. Uh, there's a, a, a jukebox in the corner. And if you're looking st- straight back, there was a pool table, which would have been past the bar, running horizontal, and then like a couple more tables in the corner over there, and the bathrooms were to the back of that. Small hole in the wall, right? And definitely a local place. All right, so let me tell you what happened on April 15th, 1990. So uh, defendant Scott Bork was indicted for the second-degree murder of Jasper Fontenot, which occurred on the night of Easter Sunday, April 15th, 1990, at the Barn Lounge in Gaydon, Louisiana. The the defendant had a first jury trial in, in Vermilion Parish, which ended in a mistrial during jury selection because most of the the potential jurymen knew either the defendant, the victim, or their families, and a fair and impartial jury could not be selected. Venue for the defendant's second trial was changed to Lafayette Parish, and trial began on February 1st, 1993. On February 4th, 1993, the jury found the defendant guilty of second-degree murder, and he was later sentenced to the statutory mandated mandated sentence of life imprisonment at hard labor without benefit of probation or parole or suspension of sentence, uh, Louisiana Revised Statute 1430.1. It is from this conviction and the sentence and that he appealed, y'all. So let me tell you the facts of the case, and I'll just hold on, Okay. The shooting death of Jasper Fondo occurred on the night of Easter Sunday, the same day I picked the guy up on the bridge, y'all. Easter Sunday, April 15, 1990. Terry Lujan, that's L-O-U-G-O-N, a first cousin of Jasper Fontenot, a friend of the defendant and the owner of the barn lounge, testified that the victim had backed his car into the defendant's car while the two were at a party at the Lujan home approximately one year before the shooting. Jasper Fontenot had agreed to pay the defendant $80 for damages to the defendant's car, but as of April 15, 1990, he had not given the defendant the money he owed. Dwight Smith, that was probably the only non-Cajun name in this, y'all. Dwight Smith, a witness for the defense testified that two or three weeks before the shooting, he was riding around town with Jasper Fontenot 
when the defendant stopped Fonda's car and they talked about the money. On the night of April 15, 1990, the defendant arrived at the barn and asked Terry Lujan if that was Jasper Fontenot at the end of the bar. The defendant went over and spoke with Fontenot, but no one who witnessed this conversation testified that their conversation was loud or angry. Tamantha Broussard, another strong Cajun name, B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D, testified that after the defendant finished talking with Fontenot, the defendant asked Terry Lujan if he could use the office phone. Lujan told the defendant he did not have one and gave the defendant his house key so the defendant could go so the defendant could go use his house phone. At this point, the defendant said, I ought to take care of him. And Lujan told the defendant, man, I don't want any trouble. The defendant turned and began to walk out of the lounge and then turned around and again came back and pulled out a 9mm semi-automatic pistol from his pants and said, I'm going to take care of that motherfucker right now. Tamantha Broussard told Lujan, I'm out of here, and began to run to the side door. She saw Lujan grab the defendant's hand, and Lujan told her, No, it's okay. I got it. Lujan and the defendant struggled, and the defendant eventually pushed Lujan onto the pool table. Tamantha Broussard saw Fontenot turn around to look at the defendant, and Lujan struggling. Tamantha Broussard Sard testified that I guess he thought Terry needed help, that Scott and Terry were fighting. Tamantha Broussard saw Fontenot turn and take a step toward Lujan and the defendant, but she did not see the defendant actually shoot Fontenot because she was running out the side door. Tamantha Broussard testified that Fontenot never took a karate stance or made any aggressive moves towards the defendant, nor did Fontenot do anything to irritate or aggravate the defendant. Lujan testified that after the defendant and Fontenot spoke, the defendant came back to him and began to ask more questions about Fontenot. Lujan told Fontenot, the defendant, that he did not want any trouble in the club, and the defendant began to leave to use the telephone at Lujan's home. Lujan saw the defendant sitting at the bar and Fontenot standing at the end. The next thing he saw was the defendant saying, I'm going to take care of this shit right now. As he came around the corner of the bar, pulling out his 9mm nickel-plated handgun from his pants, Lujan walked up to the defendant, and they began to struggle over the gun. Boom! After one shot was fired, Lujan let go, and the defendant pushed him onto the pool table. The defendant then fired three more shots. Elizabeth... Derion, I'm down, y'all, I knew them, I messed this one up. It's D E R O U E N. Elizabeth Duron was talking to Fontenot at the time of the shooting. Ms. Duron testified that she was an old friend and former lover of Fontenot, and she had not seen him in many years. They were talking about the death of Fontenot's brother at the time of the shooting, and Fontenot was crying about his brother's death. While she and Fontenot were sitting at the bar, she saw the defendant and Lujan wrestling, and she described Lujan trying to hold back the defendant. At that time, Fontenot had his head down on the bar crying. Ms. Duron testified that Fontenot did not get up until the defendant pulled out his gun. Fontenot responded by saying, hey, and the defendant started shooting. According to Ms. Duron, Lujan and the defendant were wrestling over the gun when the first shot went off. 
Marion Boulay, that's B-O-U-L-E-Y, another strong Cajun name, had accompanied Miss Durand to the barn. She saw the defendant pull a big silver gun out of his pants and then saw Lujan and the defendant struggling. Miss Boulay confirmed that Miss Durand was talking with Fontenot at the time of the struggle. Miss Boulay told Miss Durand that there's going to be a fight in here, and after the first shot was fired, she hid behind the bar. Joanne Broussard, another strong name, saw the defendant. Fontenot and Lujan at the bar and testified that no one was shouting, nor did Fontenot make any aggressive moves toward the defendant. In fact, neither Lujan, Elizabeth Duron, Tamantha Broussard, nor Marion Boulay saw the victim swinging a pool cue at the defendant, nor making any aggressive, threatening, or provocative moves or statements toward the defendant. Two state witnesses whose testimony about the event of April 15, 1990, differed from the others were Royce Myers and his wife, Cheryl Oberg Myers. Now, uh, all Cajun, y'all. Royce Myers testified that he was speaking with the defendant before the shooting and that the defendant appeared fine and was not intoxicated. Royce Myers did not witness the shooting. Cheryl Myers gave a detailed account of the shooting, which varied greatly from that of the other eyewitnesses. She said the defendant was talking with Royce Myers and then began shooting Fontenot, who was at a pool table and not at the bar. Cheryl Myers contradicted Royce Myers by saying that Royce Myers saw all the shooting. Y'all, eyewitness testimony is one of the worst things in the world, okay, from my experience. And so somebody is going to see it differently. But in the, the barn is not even... Shit, 80 feet long, probably so. I don't know if uh, old Royce just didn't want to be involved in it. But anyway, counsel for the defendant spent much time impeaching Cheryl Myers. One defense witness, Daryl Dyson, D-Y-S-O-N, I know it's supposed to be Dyson, but they say Dyson, claimed that he saw Cheryl Myers pop a white peel in the defendant's mouth shortly before the shooting. No other witnesses saw this. Cheryl Meyer specifically denied giving the defendant appeal. Elizabeth Durand, who was nearby talking with Fontenot at the bar, never saw the defendant get appeal from Cheryl Myers. Daryl Dyson further testified that he saw Fontenot swinging a pool cue at the defendant, but he did not see the shooting because he said he left the bar shortly before it occurred. Only one other witness testified that he saw Fontenot swinging a pool cue at the defendant, and that was Darren Smith. Smith was another eyewitness to the shooting. However, his timing of the victim swinging the pool cue, saying, ha, the struggle over the gun and the firing of the gunshots was almost an immediate succession of events, while Daryl Dyson's testimony was that there was enough time between Fontenot swinging the cue and saying, ha, for the defendant to return to a spot around the corner of the bar and for Dyson to leave before the shooting. Marianne Boulay, Elizabeth Durand, Tamantha Broussard, Terry Lujan, and Joanne Broussard all denied that. They all denied that they saw Fontenot playing pool or swinging a pool cue immediately before the shooting. The victim's blood alcohol content was measured at 0.167%, but only the defendant's witnesses said either the defendant or Fontenot acted intoxicated. To Lujan... Tamantha Broussard, Joanne Broussard, Elizabeth Durand, Marianne Boulay, Cheryl Myers, 
both to the defendant and Fondo acted fine, as if they were not intoxicated. Marion Moe, spelled M-E-A-U-X, another Cajun, a cousin of the defendant, testified that she and the defendant drank all afternoon beginning in Lafayette and proceeding to Maurice, and then Maurice is another town, y'all, that's just south of uh, Lafayette in extreme country, Cajun country, home of the Maurice City Bar, um, proceeding to Maurice and then to Gaydon. She testified the defendant was obviously drunk, but was able to drive from Lafayette to Maurice and then to Gaydon. Now, look, y'all, that ain't a short drive. It's well over an hour and something, but it is all flat land and rice fields and shit. All right, so the defendant presented Albert Hanks, who testified that Cheryl Myers told him a few weeks after the shooting that the defendant was drunk and Fontenot was going after him. Royce Bonin, B-O-N-I-N, was also called as an impeachment witness, and he testified that Royce Myers, his nephew, and Cheryl Myers came to his house that day after the shooting and said that they were leaving because they were scared and that the defendant was drunk or drugged at the time of the shooting. Rita Duran, D-U-R-A-N-D, the defendant's mother, testified that Lujan spoke to her after the shooting and gave a different version of the shooting and told her he was angry at the defendant for shooting Fondo, who was his first cousin. Remember, I told you everybody's related, right? Melvin Bro, B-R-E-A-U-X, Cajun, lived next to the lounge and heard four shots fired shortly after 10 p.m. He recovered four empty casings and two bullets inside the bar. It was determined that one bullet had entered the body of Fontenot and exited. One bullet was still lodged in his body, and two bullet holes were found in the floor, plus one in the ceiling. Sergeant Norman Schultz was a detective for the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. He assisted in the arrest of the defendant in New Orleans and the recovery of the nickel-plated Smith & Wesson 9mm semi-automatic pistol from the defendant's car. The defendant and the state stipulated that this gun fired the shot that killed Jasper Fontenot. Sergeant Schultz also testified that at the time... The defendant was arrested. The defendant admitted that he had killed someone. The coroner, Dr. Emil Laga, L-A-G-A, testified that the cause of death was a fatal gunshot wound to the chest. The bullet entered at the left arm or shoulder of the victim and proceeded through the chest and the aorta and went from right, left, and down from front to back. A second gunshot wound entered the lower chest or abdomen and exited through the right hip. Dr. Laga testified that the two bullets followed nearly parallel paths, and it appeared that the victim was standing when he was shot and not lying on the ground. It also appeared that the victim was facing the defendant, but Dr. Laga testified that it was possible that he could have been backing up or walking towards the defendant. All right, so this is where we're at, okay? Ultimately, the second trial, because the first one, they, they overturned it on jury selection because, you know, everybody was related and everybody knew somebody or, you know, by marriage, whatever. And so they retried in Lafayette. I'm going to sum it up for you. They retried him in Lafayette for it, and he's found guilty. Now, I'm going to tell you about his appeals process, and this is nothing to do with the the 
next case that I'm going to tell you that this guy's involved with next week and how crazy it is. So, but this is all important. It'll, it'll build up to where I'm going. All right. So he, he he's challenged on a whole bunch of different things. I'm just going to read a couple of them. Um, skip that one. It's about prescription. All right. So one of the things he said, y'all, in the, the, is that the trial court did not, or the DA did not provide there was sufficient evidence to find the defendant guilty of second-degree murder. Since all of the defendant has placed this assignment of error toward the end of his appellate brief, it will be addressed first since it concerns the sufficiency of the evidence to convict the defendant. The defendant admits that he killed Jasper Fontenot. He also admitted that he had specific intent to kill when he shot the victim. The one question in this assignment of error is whether or not the homicide was committed in sudden passion or heat of blood and therefore should be reduced to manslaughter. All right. Basically, y'all, they're saying that, you know, for second-degree murder, you have to have the specific intent. It was like, if, if it's true that uh, he has to go use Lujan's phone and he left, he said, no, I'm going to take care of this motherfucker now. And he turns that specific intent. If, if a mosquito lands on your arm, Charlotte Aberry sees this in her openings. If a mosquito lands on your arm, you say, hey, that's a mosquito and it's biting me and I'm going to kill it, whether you realize it or not, when you slap it, that's you had the specific intent to kill his ass, okay? So him saying that that he didn't have a specific t- intent, just how stupid this is. But, I mean, everybody has the right to appeal, I guess. In order for the state to obtain a conviction, it must prove the elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. A ter- the determination of the weight of evidence presented is a question of fact. The resolution of a matter where conflicting testimony exists requires the determination of credibility of the witness and is a matter of weight of evidence and not sufficiency. Such a determination rests solely with the trier of fact who may accept or reject in whole or in part the testimony of a witness. A fact finder's discretion will be impinged upon only to the extent necessary to guarantee the fundamental protection of due process of law. Where rational triers of fact could disagree to the interpretation of the above evidence, the rational triers' view of all evidence most favorable to the prosecution must be adopted on review. Only irrational decisions to convict by the trier of fact will be overturned. Second-degree murder is defined as the killing of a human being when the offender has the specific intent to kill or to inflict great bodily harm, L-A-R-S 1430.1. Therefore, the state had to prove the defendant killed Jasper Fontenot, one, Two, did so having a specific intent to kill or to inflict great bodily harm. The evidence is clearly sufficient to find that the defendant shot and killed Jasper Fontenot. Also, the fact that the defendant shot at the victim three to four times evidences that the defendant acted with specific intent to kill or to inflict great bodily harm. We find that the evidence against the defendant supports the verdict of guilty of second-degree murder. In order to reduce a first- or second-degree murder to manslaughter, the homicide must be committed in such a passion or heat of blood immediately caused by provocation sufficient to deprive an average person of his self-control and cool reflection. 
Provocation will not reduce a homicide to manslaughter if the trier of fact finds that the defendant's blood had actually cooled or the average person's blood would have cooled at the time that the homicide was, com was committed. All right, y'all, basically they're saying bullshit, right? It's not like they were in the middle of a fist fight and you're in the heat of the moment and, you know, the guy's skull got fractured or something and he bled out and they, they, he didn't have the specific intent to do it. I mean, you shot him. You shot him three times, all right? That's after Lujan wrestled you for the gun to try to stop you from doing it. So anyway, now they, they're going to get into the, the next part of the uh, the appeal. They're going to try just bear with me. The defendant argues that because not a single state witness testified that the defendant had any premeditated plan or intention to kill Jaspano, it leads to the inescapable conclusion that the defendant acted on the spur of the moment out of the extreme provocation. The defendant contends that Jasper Fontenot's teasing and taunting of the intoxicated defendant in a lounge full of patrons was sufficient provocation within the meaning of second-degree murder. By its verdict, the jury rejected the defendant's evidence that Jasper Fontenot had been teasing and taunting the defendant or making any threatening gestures towards him immediately before the shooting. This is a credibility determination of the jury and should not be disturbed on appeal in the absence of an abuse of discretion. The defendant also makes much of the fact that the verdict was 10 to 2 and not unanimous. Louisiana Revised Statute, whatever, 782 requires that a verdict of guilty of second-degree murder must be by a vote of 10 out of 12 years. A unanimous jury verdict is not required, nor does it establish any doubt as to the validity of the verdict. Therefore, this assignment of error is without merit. The evidence presented at the trial was sufficient to support the defendant's conviction to second-degree murder. All right. Assignment of error number one. Yeah, obviously, y'all, I'm reading this straight from the uh, Louisiana Court of Appeals, what they, what they publish. By this assignment of error, the defendant contends that the trial court erred in denying his motion to change venue from Lafayette Parish. As noted previously, the defendant's motion to change venue from Vermilion Parish was granted after the defendant's first trial ended in a mistrial of Wadere. That's jury selection, y'all. Established that no fair and impartial jury could be selected from Vermilion Parish. Again, that they did Wadere, and, and Louisiana's under Napoleonic Code of Law. That's a French term for jury selection. And that's when you get your subpoena to come in to be on a jury and they call your name and put you in a box with 12 other jurors. The defense gets to ask you so many questions. The prosecution gets to ask so many questions and the judge can ask you uh, questions that they want to and each, you each get so many strikes. But what happened was, shit is in Vermilion Parish. That's where Gaydon is. And I mean, there's nothing down there. Gaydon, Kaplan, um, a couple small towns, but really in 1990, we're talking... 31-plus years ago, everybody knew everybody. They were all related. Uh, all the Cajuns, you know, their families have been there since the 1780s or whenever, and they got kicked out of uh, Canada, and they settled down there, right? So everybody knew everybody. So I, I get that. It, they didn't even do the trial, right? I mean, the judge is like, at the end, he's like, shit, yeah, everybody down here knows everybody. We got, <laughs> we got to move it to Lafayette, like I told you. Lafayette is a bit of a ways away, okay? You, you, I mean, I can remember driving from just south of Lafayette down to Gaydon 
to go goose hunting or to rock for the wildlife refuge to go crabbing and shit. And it's it's a bit of a ride, all right? And it's and, you know, it ain't close. So the change of venue where he had his trial was in Lafayette Parish, much bigger, uh, you know, much more uh, of a city and all that, much bigger jury pool. So now he's challenging saying Lafayette wasn't fair. And let me, let me read it to you. By assignment of error, the defendant contends that this trial, that the trial court erred in denying his motion to change the venue from Lafayette Parish. As noted previously, the defendant's motion to change venue from Million Parish was granted after the defendant's first trial ended in a mistrial. Bois Deere established that no fair and impartial jury could be selected from Million Parish. On September 30th, 1992, Judge Simon signed an order transferring the venue from Million Parish to Lafayette Parish. The defendant never filed a motion to change this new venue nor objected until the day of trial on February 1, 1993. The defendant's motion was based upon the close proximity of Vermillion and Lafayette parishes and the problem of selecting a fair jury since the defendant's present second-degree murder charge had generated much publicity in the, at the local media. At the time, well, shit, shit, y'all, fucking Gaydon and Kaplan didn't have... <laughs> I mean, Lafayette had the only the only TV channel, right? The only news station that could cover it, and the only newspaper that could cover it. So I, I mean, I get that, but that was stupid. So at the time, the defendant orally moved to change the venue. The trial judge deferred ruling on this issue until after Voidier jury selection, or during Voidier if the issue once again presented itself. The defendant and the state selected a 12-person jury, and the defendant had to exercise only seven of his 13 peremptory challenges at the end of jury selection. The defendant did not re-urge his motion to change venue, nor did he make any objection on this, this issue. Therefore, there was no ruling by the trial court on this issue. Okay, y'all, remember I told you so many strikes, right? And when they ask you those questions, the prosecution is going to say, do you know anybody involved in this case? And if they say, if the juror, potential juror says, yeah, then they'll say, well, do you feel, or what is your relationship? Well, I, need, I went to high school with him. Okay, well, do you feel that um, you going to high school with them it, it could cause you to be uh, unfair in rendering whether he's guilty or not? And they'll say yes or no. And if they say yeah, then they probably would strike him, right? Or and, and if they say no, then they would say, okay, at your next high school reunion, if you find him guilty, do you think you're going to get in trouble for it? It's going to cause you some kind of grief. And I mean, I'm, I'm telling you this because I've heard it a thousand times in all my murder trials. And so these these are the kind of questions they ask them. And then they'll ask them about death penalty and stuff like that. Uh, but what they're saying is, he, okay, let me digress. Tommy, Tommy Gilbo was one of um, Bork's defense attorney, probably his lead defense attorney, and T Gilbo is sharp. I've worked for him in my private business uh, since retiring from the state police as uh, in defense consulting. He's a he's a well-known uh, trial lawyer, I mean, criminal trial lawyer, and, and he's, a, he's a damn good one. So, I mean, he's not stupid. And uh, they, they raise the, the motion orally. Then they go through voir dire, and they don't even have to use all the strikes because they couldn't find anything wrong with the jurors. That, that's to sum it up, okay? So then they just get, go through it. Uh, um, they denied this part of the appeal, saying, saying basically to save you all, all the time, they're calling it bullshit, the Court of Appeals, okay? So let me get to the next one. Uh, this was total bullshit. I'm not going to stay on it for long. He said they, the trial court erred in that he asked for, Tommy Gilbo asked for 
a motion to sequester the jurors upon selection of the jury. In, in non-capital cases, the jury shall be sequestered after the court's charge and may be sequestered at any time upon order of the court. So that's up to the, to the trial judge, y'all. But that means they asked for all the jurors, to, the potential jurors, to be sequestered from each other. And, just, you know, court was like, uh, that would cost way too much money and time. We'll do it. But after after you use all your strikes and the jury is seated, the jury and the alternates are seated, and the, and the judge says, okay, now you're the jurors, blah, blah, blah. And that's what they call a charge in the jury. After that, they sequester them, right? So they, he's saying that that was a— He's throwing shit against the wall to see if it would stick, and it didn't stick. So we'll get past that when they they denied it. All right, error three. Uh, this one I'm not going to get into because it gets into next week. The let's see. All right, so we'll go to four, five, and six. These three assignments of error are so interrelated and their issues overlap to the point that the discussion will be combined. The defendant pled not guilty to the charge of second-degree murder on July 3, 1990, on April's, and on April 16, 1992, the defendant argued motions to obtain funds to secure the attendance of expert psychiatric witnesses. The court Minutes mentioned that the court appointed these doctors to examine the defendant, but no sanity commission was requested and no sanity hearing was conducted. On July 1, 1992, the defendant filed whatever, notice of intent to in introduce evidence of a mental condition. Nothing else happened on this issue until February 1, 1993, when trial began. After jury selection, the state filed a motion in limine to exclude expert testimony that a mental condition of the defendant precluded specific intent necessary for a second-degree murder. The state cited article whatever. And the fact that the defendant never pled not guilty and not guilty by the reason of sanity in argument to the trial court. The defendant contended that he had a mental condition which mitigated second-degree murder down to manslaughter. However, the trial court relied upon state versus Johnson, whatever, um, and exclude the psychiatric evidence. The defendant thereafter requested to change his plea from not guilty to not guilty and not guilty by the reason of insanity, but the trial court denied the, this request. The defendant supervisory writs of the review from the Third Circuit Court of Appeal and Louisiana Supreme Court, both of which were denied. The prior denial of supervisory writs does not bar reconsideration of this issue on appeal, nor does it prevent the appellate panel from reaching a different conclusion of this issue, blah, blah, blah. Generally, when a defendant does not present any new evidence on this issue after the pretrial ruling of, on the issue, the issue can be rejected on appeal. Judicial efficiency demands that this court accord great deference to its pretrial decision unless it it is apparent that the determination was patently erroneous and have produced unjust results. We will not discuss the issues raised in the previous writ and now on appeal. Assignments of error number four contends that the trial court erred in refusing to allow the defendant to change his plea from not guilty to guilty and not guilty by the reason of sanity. When the defendant Bork requested to change his plea, the jury had been sworn in and his request was untimely. Therefore, the trial court did not abuse its discretion because it's no longer had any discretion in the in this matter. Assignments of error number five and six concern the trial court granting of this motion in limine by the state and refusing to allow the defense experts to testify that the defendant's mental condition could mitigate the defendant's crime from second-degree murder to manslaughter. 
Counsel for the defendant claimed that the medical experts would testify to the defendant's psychological background, which included various degrees of abuse and chemical dependency, along with the defendant's mental faculties, made it very likely the defendant acted out of sudden passion and or heat of blood. And this testimony would have been enough to reduce the grade of the defense from second-degree murder to manslaughter. The defendant does not deny that he was sane and that he had the requisite specific intent to kill the victim. Instead, the defendant claims that he acted in the heat of blood or sudden passion. The defendant further contends that after given notice as required, his experts should have been allowed to testify about these mitigating circumstances arising from the defendant's mental conditions, even though the defendant was not seeking to avail himself on the insanity defense or claim lack of specific intent. When a defendant is tried upon a plea of not guilty, evidence of his insanity or mental def defect at the time of the offense shall not be admissible. Therefore, evidence of mental defect at the time of the offense is admissible only if a defendant pleads not guilty and guilty by reason of insanity, which he didn't do, y'all. He didn't. He wanted to change his plea after the jury had already been seated. It's just, I mean, it was a good, good trial by Tommy Gilbo, no doubt about it, but it didn't work. All right, y'all, so the conclusion, it says, for the above and foregoing reasons, the defendant's conviction and sentence are affirmed. The district court is directed to inform the defendant of the provisions of LSA-CCRP Article 930.8 relative to post-conviction relief by sending appropriate written notice to the defendant within 10 days of the rendition of this opinion to file written proof that the defendant received the notice in the record of these uh, proceedings. Y'all... That means when the court ruled on it, they had to serve his ass in Angola and it had to be personal service and all that. And so he couldn't challenge that on appeal. So I'm going I'm to stop it there for this week. But this is this is the beginning of a shit show story. And you're not going to believe how it goes on. But I just want to give you what how it starts, right? So, oh boy, on Easter Sunday, spends a day drinking, according to him and, and his, his cohort, and they end up at the barn in Gaidon. And he sees the dude, Fontenot, who backed into his car and did $80 worth of damage like the year before and agreed to pay for it. And obviously he never did. Supposedly he stopped him in Gaidon, which is like a one-horse town, and the sidewalks roll up at dark 30, especially back then. I think they have a dollar store now. But so... He just happens to end up at the barn, and which is a whole little off, but it goes to show you on Easter Sunday, and I was guilty myself, Easter Sunday, it was packed, and, and it was full of coon asses, which is not a derogatory term if you're from Louisiana or if you're Cajun, they call each other coon asses. But they're all in there, and they all relate to the point where he goes in, talks to the bartender slash owner, and... Ask him, was that fond nose saying got it back to him? And he said, yeah. And then ask him to use his office phone. And he's like, yeah, I don't have an office phone, but here, here's my house keys. Go in my house. I mean, shit, they all knew each other, right? And so he comes back in and, and you know, doesn't end up leaving all the way and comes, pulls his gun and comes back in. Lujan tries to stop him. People start hollering ass. Nothing to clear a barroom or fuck up an eyewitness testimony like a little gunfire, okay? Or somebody pulling a gun first. You heard the one lady, you know, say, oh, yeah, I saw him pull a gun, but I ran I ran out the door. Another one hid behind the bar. And Lujan is, you know, 
thinking that mm, maybe I, I'll just stop it or whatever until, bam, the bork fight squeezes off around. And Lujan was like, fuck that, and got out of the way, right? They said he, he pushed him on the pool table. I believe Lujan probably did a combat rule over that motherfucker to get out of the way of the gunplay that happened then. Then when that gun goes off, Fondo, is, that's when he looked up and he sees him. And uh, Bork, you know, either closes the distance at him or, you know, or whatever. There was some testimony, you know, the people that were favorable to uh, Bork trying to say that, you know, he sw- uh, Fondo swung a pool stick at him and all that bullshit. Everybody else said that didn't happen. Typical in a case where, you tr- you know, trying to save your partner's life. But anyway, he goes towards Fondo. I mean, he said it. He said, I'm going to take care of this motherfucker right now. Lujan tries to stop him. Boom, he fires around. He, he, he fucking, that's the one that ended, ends up in the roof, right? They they recover all four bullets. One that ends up in the roof is one that he fires when he and Lujan are fighting over the pistol. Lujan gets the fuck out of the way. He approaches Fondo, shoots him three times, kills him, deader and shit. But the beauty of it is, I mean, he gets arrested later in New Orleans, and I'll tell you all about that next week. But, I mean, this story is about to get really good when what happens when he leaves the bar and before he's arrested. And then what has happened since then? It is so stupid. It is so stupid. But I'm going to stop this episode for this week. And, y'all, I don't like to read a lot. And you know that I'm unscripted or raw, but I had to go in and get you these facts. And I thought it was funny once I started reading it. I mean, all the different Cajuns testifying. And you know, at 10 o'clock at night on Easter Sunday, if you're in a bar and your ass is drunk, right? You've probably been partying all weekend. But there you have it. Next week, and I probably shouldn't just name it a totally different episode. And I think I might do that because it's totally, totally different crime. You already heard about He's been found guilty, second-degree murder of of Fontenot, and his ass is sentenced to life in Gola for the second-degree murder of Fontenot. So we're really, technically, we're done with him, right? Mm, maybe not, but I'm going to stop it right there. All right, I'm going to talk real quick about um, Crew Bash, y'all. I don't even know if there's going to be any tickets left by the time you hear this. The I'm getting this recording in uh, probably four or five days early, but the— Crew Bash, June 19th, Texas Club. I'm going to do a, it's the second annual Crew Bash. I'm going to do a live, never before heard podcast. If you made the first Crew Bash, you know, I rocked it, right? And then it's going to be awesome. The um, It's going to be adult. I'm going to be drinking. And it's going to be a hell of a story, okay? Uh, um, live, raw, and unscripted. And then right after I get done, for Lopa, we're having a drawing, at, and the tickets are on sale now, and you, you should, everybody should know about it because we're going to do another drop about the number where you can call and purchase them. But the tickets are for all proceeds are going to benefit Lopa, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, and Captain Calvin DeBall, DeBall's Cajun Charters out of Delacroix, good friend of mine and, and the best captain I've ever been with fishing. His mama got to live for an extra five years because a LOPA recipient, or a, a, she got a double lung transplant from somebody that, somebody that was an organ donor. He offered, he said, he called me and said, hey, man, let's do a raffle and give the money to LOPA. He said, I'll donate the trip. You come down and fish for the winter and, and 
their guests, uh, you know, market it like that. I'm like, cool, I, you do that, real life, real crime, I'm pay for the lodging at the marina. They can come down the night before, we can drink a few beers, hang out, we'll fish all day. Well, then Jim Chapman of Local Leaders Podcast, uh, I was on his, my wife and I were on his show. It's my second time on the show, y'all. Y'all need to check it out, um, Local Leaders podcast and he's growing phenomenally but he when he i told him about it on a podcast he was so man the, the winner's gonna need some uh an ice chest to take some fish home and i was like yeah they're gonna need it because we're gonna catch the shit out of them right and they, you can catch anything on this trip y'all from specks to reds to to freshwater cats to bass to you know sheephead flounder you name it but anyway i was like yeah because i know I've been on a bad day with Calvin, uh, um, and I know how many we caught. And he said, well, I want to donate. And local Leaders the Podcast wants to donate uh, 125-quart Yeti ice chest. It's another 600 bucks, y'all. So it's a couple thousand dollars worth of prizes. I'm gonna, we're going to do the drawing. That part will be live on Facebook. That's the only part that's going to be live on Facebook. Uh, but you don't need to be present to win. $15 for one ticket. $100 for a book of 10, okay? And we're only going to sell them for a month. And the end, we're going to do the drawing live on the stage. We'll announce who it is. You can pick out whenever it is you want to go fishing, uh, bring your guests, and then I'll go down there and hang with you and fish for the day and get the lodging and all that, and you get the big, fine ice chest. Hell, I want to I want to buy tickets myself. <laughs> but, the, but also, I'm going to turn around and give the... Lopa representative, I believe it would be Miss Lori Steele, the check on the stage that lifers, uh, yeah, the money that we raise, right? So anyway, it's important. Y'all know I care about uh, Lopa. So the the crew bash tickets are 40 bucks. After I get done, Chase Tyler Band, two-time Louisiana Country Music Hall of Fame inductee, is going to take the stage and perform a concert. Meanwhile, and it's going to kick ass. I've been to his shows, y'all. I'm telling you, it's not like a barroom band playing, okay? And meanwhile, he's doing his concert. I'm going to be over to the side, and I'll be doing my meet and greet, and I'll sign anything you want, take a picture with you. And look, at the other four lives, I did that for like four hours or numerous hours after the first three and for like four hours after the crew bash while Toby Tomplay was playing on stage. I never got to see it. And I was in the back sign. And that's fine. I'm going to meet and greet every one of y'all that want to be met. And for 40 bucks, you can't beat that kind of entertainment, okay? But it's going to sell out. It's probably y'all are, I'm probably wasting my breath because it's probably already sold out. But you need to get your tickets now. I know it's still early, y'all. It's still like over a month away. But I'm telling you, they're not going to be there. And just like what happened last time on the crew bash, we sold out, and then everybody won it. And I can't, I can't do it. We can only put the people in that they say we can put in. So I wish that we could. And we got people come. We got lifers coming from all over the United States. And I'm staying at the Capital City Hilton downtown. We've got a special real life, real crime rate. If you want to come stay where we're staying, and we got life for small of the United States that are coming also, plus a lot of locals, including uh, Captain Duvall, Duvall's Cajun Charters. He and his wife are coming in and staying at the ho same hotel. But it's right there centrally located downtown to all the bars and restaurants, and it's on the Mississippi River. And we have a special rate. And if you do it online, the, the code is RLRC. If you call them, just tell the ladies there that you're coming to see Real Life Real Crime 
the crew bash and, and they'll hook you up at the right. It's a good right. So in social media, y'all, thanks for sharing. I appreciate it. I'm on Instagram at Real Life Real Crime or at Overton Woody. I put a lot of funny stuff on there that I don't do. Discord. Uh, I put funny stuff on Instagram that I don't don't normally put on the Facebook pages. Facebook pages, we have a ton of them, y'all. The Lanyap page is is that private group. You can go in there and list anything that interest that you have, anything that you're selling, et cetera, anything that's not true crime related. Real life, real crime Lanyap page. Um, y'all know about the crew page. Real life, real crime. Friends, fans, and crew. I mean, it's uh, like 35,000 members or something like that. Private group. It's strictly true crime, okay? And I'm in there every day trying to respond to everybody. And then we have regular pages. My um, regular Real Life Real Crime, that's open to the public Facebook page. It has like, I don't know, 13, 15,000 members, whatever. So I'm posting across all these social media things. Um, just, you know, go, go follow us and give us a like. If, if you're so inclined, Go to Apple iTunes and and leave us a review or wherever you listen to the podcast. Leave us a review. And I'm going to shut up uh, and stop this, but I appreciate you and Lopa again, y'all. You know I ended with Lopa. And if you are a listener, let me look at them out. If you're a listener in Istanbul, if you're in Istanbul and you're a listener of Real Life Real Crime, Go to lopa.org, sign up to be an organ donor, be a hero, give the gift of life. You don't have to be from Louisiana to do it. They're a nonprofit agency, uh, um, and that's it. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.